The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Cancer Control Through Early Blood-Based Detection, Perspectives on Integrating Innovative Multi-Cancer Early Detection Tests in the Primary Care Setting. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MBR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Cancer Control Through Early Blood-Based Detection. I'm Dr. John Russell from the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Thomas Beer from the Oregon Health and Science University and the Knight Cancer Institute to this panel. Today, we're gonna to focus on the challenges of current cancer screening and highlight how blood-based multi-cancer tests can address several unmet needs in the early detection of cancer and how these tools can potentially challenge and change how primary care professionals and oncologists can work together in a team-based fashion. During this program, we will periodically share several resources that can reinforce the main take-home, our discussion on MCED testing, so please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. So let's begin. So, in many ways, it's never been a better time to have cancer. There are new tools and new treatments and, and people are surviving as never before, but many cancers are still found in later stages. If you look at the five-year survival from all cancers, if something is found when diagnosed early, there's an 89% five-year survival rate. When something is diagnosed late, a 21% survival rate. And just speaking about lung cancer, a five-year survival of 56% if it's localized, but only 5% if it has distant metastases. And these are common with a lot of other cancers. Breast, colorectal, and lung cancer are often diagnosed in a later stage. So we have five cancers that we screen for. We screen for breast cancer, starting somewhere in that 40 to 45 years of age. And then there are all kinds of different screening tests, depending on which one you look at, whether it's annually or every other year. Cervical cancer screening now begins at the age of 21, goes up to the age of 65, and it can be mixed with HPV testing to increase the accuracy of cancer risk. Prostate cancer is a very controversial screening test. If you're going to start, you're gonna start somewhere in that 50 to 55 years of age and go up to the age of 70. Lung cancer and screened with low dose CT scanning is gonna begin around the age of 50 and go up to the age of 80, and those screening recommendations just recently changed, and that's an annual screening test. And colorectal cancer screening, we have a multitude of different ways to screen for that Again, a newer recommendation starting at the age of 45, and we're gonna do that kind of based on the test anywhere from annually to every 10 years. And if you look at cancer deaths in the United States for 2022, in men, the most common cancers that cause a demise would be lung cancer, prostate cancer, or colorectal cancer. If you look in women, it would be lung, breast, and colon and rectal cancer. And there are lots of studies that come out and talk about how ways someone like myself, a primary care clinician, can increase my cancer screening rates. Uh, we want more people to have health insurance. We want more people to have a regular physician. We can harness some of the great powers of our EMR. We can use screening navigators. There are lots of ways to have people tap into these five cancers that we screen for, yet, only about 44% of the cancers in the United States that cause fatalities 
are screened for routinely. And if you had lung cancer and never smoked, you would never be screened. So the paradigms might need to change. We have patients who do everything right and say, doctor, I did everything you asked me to do, but how did I still come down with the cancer? And Tom and I are gonna talk through some exciting challenges and changes that might happen to all our practices, be it a, a primary care doctor or an oncologist like Tom. Tom, I'm gonna turn it over to you to start talking about multi-cancer early detection tests. Sure, thank you very much. So one of the technological and scientific developments in the field has been the evolution of so-called um, liquid biopsies. These are uh, typically tests that involve a blood-based assay that measures a variety of analytes. Those could be protein, DNA, RNA, and others. Uh, and those are in common use now in the care of cancer patients, um, but they are being evaluated and emerging in, in research for cancer early detection. And one of the approaches that's being taken is multi-cancer detection. Uh, and that's where multi-cancer early detection, or MSED uh, name, comes from. These are tests designed to use a single blood test, analyzing multiple analytes simultaneously with the goal of detecting uh, multiple cancers simultaneously. Uh, there are three such tests that are um, furthest along, uh, two in the U.S., Gallery and CancerSeq. Uh, Gallery uses um, methylation analysis of circulating DNA, and CancerSeq um, uses circulating DNA mutational analysis as well as protein biomarker analysis. Um, both of these have undergone initial studies in large groups of patients with the goal of cancer detection, and both of them have been granted breakthrough device designation from the US FDA. So in the next few slides, I'm going to share with you some of the initial results of these initial clinical tests of these emerging early detection tests. Uh, so how uh, do these tests work? First, we begin with a blood sample that's collected in the clinic. It's designed to detect multiple cancers, including cancers for which currently there are no screening modalities. Uh, it may also have the capability of suggesting the tissue of origin of a suspected cancer, which can direct the clinical evaluation based on the results uh, of uh, the test. Currently, these tests are undergoing um, population-wide validation in clinical trials. And one of the key features um, is that these tests are designed to have a high degree of specificity. When we think about early detection tests, there are two major levers that we push on. One is sensitivity, or the ability to detect as many cancers as possible. And the other is specificity, the ability to accurately identify cancers and avoid uh, false positive results. And because these tests identify potentially multiple cancers, high specificity is an important feature to reduce the false positive rate associated with these emerging tests. Currently, these emerging tests are designed to be used alongside uh, currently recommended screening methods and not as a replacement for those. First, I'd like to uh, review with you the results from the DETECT-A study, which was the first large-scale prospective study of the CancerSeq test. In this slide, we described the testing process. It begins with a uh, baseline blood test. Uh, which then requires a confirmatory blood test if it yields an initial uh, abnormal result. 
Um, that is then followed by um, uh, PET-based imaging uh, with return of results and appropriate follow-up uh, for all participants for 12 months. The DETECT-A study enrolled uh, nearly 10,000 women between the ages of 65 and 75. And these are the basic results of that study. 490 women had a positive baseline test. 127 had a confirmed positive test. So those are the women who underwent an evaluation for a suspected cancer. And amongst those, 26 cancers were detected. Uh, more than half of them were before stage four. And you can see the stage distribution here, 10% stage one, 20% stage two, 30% um, stage three. And the types of cancers detected uh, are seen in the figure on the right-hand side of the slide. And, and you can see there was a broad range of types of cancers detected. In particular, ovarian and lung cancer stood out as relatively commonly detected with the CancerSeq test. Uh, this busy table provides you all of the test performance characteristics uh, of um, uh, the CancerSeq test. And you can see uh, the positive predictive value, and I would call your attention to the third column, uh, the test plus the diagnostic PET scan was 28%, meaning that uh, a participant who received a positive test uh, had a 28% chance of having a cancer identified. You can see that the goal of high specificity was achieved with a specificity of 99.6%. Uh, sensitivity uh, was around 15% for uh, all cancers when the blood test and a diagnostic PET-CT were considered together. Um, the next test I wanted to talk about is the uh, gallery test from GRAIL. This is a test that looks at DNA methylation patterns. Um, DNA methylation is a natural biologic process that uh, regulates gene expression. Methylated genes are silenced, and throughout our body, most of the genes uh, at any given time are silenced through methylation. Methylation patterns are unique by tissue and organ, and that is why methylation analysis uh, uh, is capable of identifying the organ of origin. And it turns out that methylation patterns are also unique in cancers, and it is that observation that led to the development of the gallery test. The gallery test was first evaluated in a series of so-called case control studies where participants with known cancer or without cancer diagnosis were evaluated. Uh, that was the so-called CCGA study, or Cir Circulating Cancer Genome Atlas. Uh, and this study enabled us to estimate the basic performance of the gallery test. From this study, we learned that uh, more than 50 cancers could be detected. The positive predictive value was 43%, leading to a 0.7% false positive rate. Uh, about half the patients that had a cancer diagnosed were stages one through three, uh, with an overall sensitivity of 67%. The organ of origin was correctly identified in 93% of participants. So it is with those data that we went into conducting the first prospective study, the Pathfinder clinical trial. The Pathfinder clinical trial enrolled more than 6,600 men and women over the age of 50 with and without additional risks of cancer uh, and evaluated the performance of the test with a 12-month follow-up uh, after the test for 
all participants. Uh, we now have the initial preliminary results uh, from this study. The study identified 92 out of 6,600 participants who had a cancer signal, and of those, 65 have completed uh, the initial diagnostic evaluation. And so it is on the basis of the results of these 65 participants that we can estimate a positive predictive value of 44.6% and a correct organ of origin identification in 85% if you look at the first most likely organ of origin suggested and 96% if we consider the first or the second most likely organ suggested by the test. So the preliminary results from Pathfinder are consistent with what we saw in the CCGA study. Uh, the study continues and the 12-month follow-up data as well as the completion of the diagnostic evaluations in the remaining patients will be reported in the coming months. Uh, this table here summarizes the types of cancers that were identified with the gallery test. It's a busy table, and it's really just meant to show you that a broad range of cancers uh, were indeed found with this test. Um, and uh, for those that were newly diagnosed cancers and not recurrent cancers, about a quarter were stage one, quarter were stage two, a quarter were stage three, and a quarter were stage four. Uh, these are new tests, and we don't yet know how the public uh, is going to view them and what concerns and priorities the public will express. We're just beginning to see some research on this uh, at the NCCN meeting uh, in um, the spring of 2022. We heard an initial report of a discrete choice experiment conducted among U.S. adults ages 50 to 80. It was an online survey uh, that um, uh, queried individuals about their uh, expectations and feelings about multi-cancer early detection. The study found a strong interest um, in uh, the additional capabilities of multi-cancer early detection uh, and a general bias towards a sensitivity, which was interesting. Uh, folks um, focused primarily on a concern about false negatives more so than false positives. We'll be learning more from similar studies um, as more research is done on public perceptions of multi-cancer early detection. So Tom, that's great, and I have a case I'd, I'd love for us to work through and kind of talk about it from our two different perspectives and how we might apply this new paradigm. But before moving on to this case, I'd like to remind you that we've made many of the take-home points and principles from the preceding slides, along with additional relevant information available as a downloadable resource. So please access these useful practice aids. So Tom, I have a patient, Jane, uh, who's a 60-year-old woman who I'm seeing in the office. She's a former smoker, she has 15 pack years, so she would not qualify as someone who would get lung cancer screening. She has a family history of breast cancer in her sister and grandmother. I don't have any BRCA information available, but she has concern with a, a strong family history of breast cancer. She did get some hormonal therapy after menopause to help with hot flashes, so that would increase her risk of some of the gynecologic cancers, breast cancer. And she's got a BMI of 29, and as you and I know, having an elevated BMI puts us at risk for cancers. And Jane is worried, and she talks to me about having some symptoms, kind of vague symptoms, about some abdominal discomfort and constipation. Nothing else especially worrisome. Um, but she 
as many of our patients do, has been on the internet, and she's worried about ovarian cancer. And when we think about our patients who might have ovarian cancer, and you and I have seen many sad cases over the years, and oftentimes by the time they're presenting to our offices or clinics, someone might have ascites, someone might be pretty sick. There are some risk factors for ovarian cancer, you know, advancing age, a history of breast or ovarian cancer, people who have some of the mutations I talked about, the BRCA1 or 2, or those related to Lynch syndrome, someone who's had breast cancer themselves, someone who's had endometriosis, someone who's had PID, someone who's tall. But as we stand here today in 2022, we have no recommended screening. And sometimes it feels very helpless when a patient asks you about ovarian cancer screening to say, well, there's some tests out there. They really don't work very well. Um, it, it feels very empty. And she might be someone, and, and there's kind of two different paradigms. So she's having some symptoms right now. And, and we, we all know that the symptoms for ovarian cancer can seem very, very vague. So probably lots and lots of people have symptoms on any given day that you could potentially link to ovarian cancer. But even if she had no symptoms, right? She's, she's worried about ovarian cancer. What would I say to her? And how could we introduce this subject of doing some MCED? So she's anxious about her cancer risk. And, you know, so I talked to her about this. And so let me walk through how I would talk about it. And maybe you could kind of fill in and, and maybe fix some of my misconceptions. So I'd say it's a simple blood test, right? So she could go to the lab and have that drawn. Most people who have these tests done, they are normal. That 99% people will come back with a, with a normal test. But if you get this test, it might not be able to completely pinpoint what cancer we need to look at. And often they can kind of put us in a range to look at maybe A or B. But if someone has a positive test, which doesn't happen real often, we might have to dig a little deeper. What am I missing, Tom, in talking to Jane about these new tests? Well, uh, John, I, I, don't, I don't think you're missing anything that I wouldn't say. I might just expand on a, on a couple of thoughts. First of all, you know, these tests are new and we're still learning about them. Um, but so far, uh, they do appear to be quite sensitive for ovarian cancer. So that's, that's encouraging uh, for someone like the patient you're visiting with. Um, the, uh, you know, the exact performance characteristics remain to be determined with ongoing follow-up and ongoing studies. So I think Jane would need to be comfortable that she's uh, trying something new. Um, but you're absolutely right, John, that for people who are concerned about ovarian cancer, large-scale studies have evaluated um, uh, the tests of today and have not shown a benefit. So these kinds of technologies offer an alternative that may uh, enable her to be screened for cancer sooner. So we do the MCED uh, screening and it's positive and it points us towards ovarian cancer. Um, so I refer her on to a GYN oncologist in my area uh, who does a pelvic exam and does some additional imaging, ultrasound, abdominal CT, CBC and a CA125. And it's found that she has an early stage 1B cancer. So this is, this is an amazing success story, right? And, and this, 
this is heroic, right? I think this is the thing I think we'd all like to do instead of kind of having the discussion with Jane when she's a stage three or stage four. Um, but so Tom, say Jane has a bunch of worries and we do the testing and it's normal. When should she be tested again? Well, that's, uh, that's a question I get a lot. And, and uh, at this point, the research that we have available really doesn't, doesn't answer that. Um, the uh, uh, Pathfinder study, for example, as well as the Detecte study, evaluated MSED tests on a one-time basis with a 12-month follow-up. Uh, and for the Pathfinder study, we're still gathering the data on the 12-month follow-up, so it's too early to even report to you what kinds of cancers may have emerged during that 12-month follow-up uh, in folks who had a normal reassuring test and so forth. So we're just learning. I think uh, you know we're, we're accustomed to screening tests being offered somewhere between every one and three years. I do think that as we think about this, we need to be mindful of the fact that the pretest probability of having cancer is an important input into the false positive rate. So if you, if you deploy a test into a group of individuals who have a very low probability of cancer, uh, when you get positive results, more of them will be false positive. So doing these tests too often may lead to a situation where um, you know, a year or two in, uh, most of the positives become false positives and we're chasing down signals that are, that are ghosts, if you will, and not real cancer. So we're gonna have to be thoughtful about that. My, my thought is that we'll, uh, uh, the interval will probably end up being every two or three years and maybe not every year, but uh, time will tell. Do you have any thoughts of what might be the sweet spot? You know, we in primary care love an age. That really kind of helps trigger us to say, should we think about this in our patients who are 45 or 50 or 60? Jane is 60, but what, what do you think might be a sweet spot for age? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, we've been studying this test in uh, people over 50, and people over 50, even without additional risk factors, have a sufficiently high prevalence of undiagnosed cancer that these tests uh, perform as expected, and we're you know, uh, the balance between false positives and true positives is clinically reasonable. So I think that's a good benchmark uh, to think about, and that is uh, average uh, people 50 and over. Uh, and then we can be thoughtful about individualizing that. So if we can find uh, groups whose risk of cancer is at least as high as that of an average 50-year-old, that might be a place where uh, deploying such tests makes sense. And so folks with an inherited um, predisposition to cancer, for example, or, or an extensive family history, we may learn down the line that these tests will make sense starting at some earlier age, but we don't have that data yet. This is really just the early days. So right now, the clinical evidence that we have is 50 and over. And when I think about kind of cancers that really show up acutely very bad. I think about ovarian cancer. Someone might present with ascites. Also that painless jaundice, right? We kind of learned that in medical school, that patient who presents with painless jaundice probably has something bad. And, you know, I've, I've seen too many tragedies associated with someone who presents with a late pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, 
biliary system uh, cancer, esophageal cancer. So I, I do think this is something that patients would be interested in. And I think it's, you know, I think it's going to take a little finagling to explain to people, you know, that a positive test might not necessarily mean that there's something horrific. And even a negative test is not kind of a stay out of jail free card forever, right? That that this is something that we're learning about as we're going, correct? Absolutely. I, I, let me uh, expand on those two. So first of all, a negative test is is not a get out of jail free card at all. <laughs> uh, uh, these tests are designed to be used alongside um, currently recommended screening uh, strategies, uh, many of which have evidence of uh, overall uh, cancer-specific survival advantage, and so we don't want to be abandoning colorectal cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, breast and lung cancer screening in smokers. Um, th that's an important um, uh, note. And also, you know, these, uh, uh, these tests are designed to be highly specific, and the cost for high specificity is incomplete sensitivity. So having a negative test does not rule out having a cancer. And so all the other things like getting uh, symptoms evaluated, if there's some concerning symptoms, need to continue. So coming back to Jane, you know, and if Jane wasn't having symptoms, this actually might be a paradigm for someone who's worried about something like ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer uh, to do some testing like this. And, you know, the United States Preventative Task Force, which is really our go-to for cancer recommendations, gives ovarian cancer screening a D recommendation. And 95% of the deaths happen in women over the age of 45 and often kind of younger people, people who have not uh, become senior citizens at this point. And symptoms are hard, right? It's, it's not these kind of classic symptoms to say, aha, that's ovarian cancer. So I would be excited to at least have something available to have a conversation if someone broached to me as opposed to, well, no one recommends this and there are some tests to do. But often the, those tests kind of lead to unnecessary surgeries, uh, the paradigm that we have now. So Jane, I think even if she didn't have symptoms and, and is concerned about ovarian cancer, I feel excited that there is a new, some new things that we can offer that aren't within the limits of the five tests that we have. Yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I mean, it, it is uh, uh, so exciting to have uh, the potential for some real advances for early detection. Um, uh, you know, as the evidence-focused uh, researcher, I, I will say we still need a lot more information. I think the uh, performance of these tests is still being assessed, and ultimately we, we will want to see evidence of an impact on um, you know, the things we care about, like advanced cancer and cancer-specific mortality, we'll want to make sure that we're not um, over-detecting um, uh, clinically insignificant lesions. All, all the pitfalls of screening, these tests uh, need additional study, just like we've studied uh, the screening tests that we now widely accept. And with those screening tests, I know what to do if someone has a abnormal mammogram or an abnormal lung cancer screen, or someone has a positive fit test. So I think the new paradigm is for me figuring out who is the person in my community, like you, Tom, who could help me answer the question, because I think the subtleties afterwards might be a lot more challenging, I think, in the days ahead until we figure this out. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think this is going to be a partnership between primary care physicians and um, 
either oncologists or other uh, specialists who are uh, familiar with the multi-cancer early detection tests, the reports, and the emerging workup strategies. We've taken quite a bit of time to sort out how we approach an abnormal mammogram uh, or an abnormal uh, lung cancer screening test. This is a new type of test. It is a bit more complex in that it detects multiple cancers and points us in multiple directions. Uh, but as we do the research that we're doing today, we are working hard to refine uh, the diagnostic approaches so that there'll be more and more clarity about this. And until we get it to a place where um, it's comfortable for everyone, I think a partnership between primary care doctors who introduce an administrative test and specialists who, when needed, assist with a diagnostic evaluation is how I see uh, us working together. Tom Beer, uh, Dr. Tom Beer, it's wonderful to work with you again, speak with you again on this topic. So that concludes our exploration of cancer screening, the role of multi-cancer blood-based screening technologies, and the primary role of primary care in applying new strategies for approving cancer screening protocols. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thanks for joining us. And thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MBR 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Grail Incorporated.